Our message is entitled, Copy Christ's Harmony and Humility, from Romans 15, verses 1 to 6. Children love to be copycats, don't they? You ever, uh, you ever witness children uh, talking about that or mimicking others, you know, or, or uh, chiding one another? Don't be a copycat. You, you ever witness something like that? Children love to be copycats on the playground. They chase around their friends and they mimic their words and expressions, you know, and oftentimes it's antagonistic as they are chasing around a certain kid and just repeating everything that the other kid says. Children also love to be copycats in the home. They repeat really only the phrases that you don't want them to repeat, right? <laughs> you learn all your bad habits and all your bad phrases and uh, the things that you're embarrassed of based on what, what your children repeat back to you. Of course, they don't repeat back all the good things you know, that you say, but uh, they only repeat those things that you're uh, embarrassed of. And sometimes it's playful for children. Other times it's, uh, uh, it's really sincere and it shows that they're observing and, uh, and learning and watching. And so, we again, we want them to copy what is good and what is upright, right? We, and we want them to forget the bad things, right? We want them to follow the, the good examples and we want them to ignore all the uh, immoral and all the, the uh, not-so-great uh, characteristics, Unless we think that only children are the copycats, us adults aren't, uh, we're not let off the hook either. We're not exempt from this. Maybe you've even heard the familiar quote, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? And I tried to actually look to the origins of that quote, and it's, I guess, so prevalent and so popular, I couldn't actually trace it back to who exactly said this. There's, lot, there's lots of variations, and, and lots of different uh, famous people have quoted it, but I couldn't really find where precisely it came from. Maybe maybe you knew, but uh, but I couldn't find it. And so imitation the sincerest, is the sincerest form of flattery. And so adults, we, we imitate people as well. We imitate in the, in the workforce, right, to, to get ahead, to be noticed, to be promoted, to leave an impression, right? We, we want to follow our boss's example. We want to follow in the footsteps of our predecessor so that we might be noticed. But also adults, we like to we replicate the actions of others when we step into somewhere new, right? So whether it be a new job or a new church or a new uh, atmosphere, we, we observe the social behavior and then we imitate it. We replicate it. We copy what is, uh, what, what is socially acceptable so that I fit in and I don't uh, you know, make a scene or I don't do something that uh, would be unacceptable to the group at large. And there's something really ingrained deep in all of us, all mankind, that we're aware of our social surroundings, right? And we copy those around us. But the catch is, is that we have a lot of examples to follow, don't we? We have a lot of, of, of people that we might act like. And so really I think what we end up doing is we end up imitating someone who shares the same values or shares the, the same goals as uh, we have. And so in those things, our moral compass then is really the guide as to who we uh, want to act like. And, you know, as we think about this and all the choices that we have and all the people that we could copy, all the people that we could replicate, who is our supreme example? Who is it that we should follow? Who is the only perfect person to walk on the earth? Who was right? Who was the one that taught us how to act in every situation? It was Jesus, wasn't it? He taught us how to be joyful and compassionate. 
He taught us how to grieve and to be sympathetic. He taught us how to be holy and righteous. He taught us how to protect and to defend. He taught us how to nurture and to serve. He taught us how to teach and correct, how to unite and how to divide, how to love and how to be loved. And so Jesus is our supreme example. Jesus is the one that we should copy. We shouldn't, as believers, be copycats, but we should be copy Christ's. Copy Christ. And so Jesus is our example. And the reason I bring this up and and, uh, draw it to your attention here is because tonight's passage and next week's passage, Jesus is really held forth as the premier example, as he is all throughout the New Testament, as Paul is is notorious for doing in his letters to, to the churches here. He holds Jesus forth as the prime example, and he does so particularly in these two passages. So let's read our passage uh, tonight. If if you haven't opened yet, uh, turn in your copy of God's Word. We're going to be in Romans 15 again, verses 1 to 6. And so follow along here as I read our verses for tonight. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. That'll be our passage for this evening, and we'll pick it up there next week. Well, obviously, it goes really without saying, but we've just finished up chapters 14. And if you're new, with uh, chapter 14 has all the instructions and all the warnings for believers of how to relate with one another who have differing convictions on personal matters of conduct that the Bible doesn't necessarily expressly forbid or command. And so chapter 14 was, was really explicit in this way of teaching us how to interact in these ways, not in issues of doctrine or biblical mandate, but really in issues of personal conviction. And, and issues that the Bible isn't clear about. And so in chapter 14, Paul, he addresses both the weak and the strong and how we are to uh, accept one another and how we are not to judge one another. And then a whole bunch of warnings for us on how we are to not judge them, how we're not to tear down, how we're not to uh, taunt, how we're not to uh, total the car, all those great instructions for us on how to live. But here in in chapter 15, hopefully you noticed, he addresses the strong, right? He says, now we who are strong. And so he's including himself in this category. And I'll just remind you that the strong here uh, that Paul is is referring to are not those who are physically stronger. He's not talking just to the, the jocks or the people that work out. He's not also referring just to those who are morally stronger, who who adhere to a certain sort of code of conduct and and are known for what they abstain from and and what they uh, really what they don't do versus what they do. And so it's it's not necessarily in issues of physical strength or moral strength, but in issues of uh, maturity in the faith. 
is what he's referring to. The strong are those who are more mature in their faith and their understanding of the Bible and they're able to wisely participate in the liberties that we have as Christians with self-control so as not to uh, fall into sin themselves or to tempt others who may uh, be weaker and be tempted to fall into sin. And so that, that's what he's referring to, is those who are mature in the faith and their understanding of the Bible, who have self-control and who know what is good for them and are aware of those who are around them. And this doesn't necessarily have a, a, a direct correlation to our, our biological age or even our years in the Lord. Although there's often a maturity that happens just with, uh, with growing in Christ and, and how long you've been a believer. And so sometimes there's correlation, but not always. Our maturity in, in Christ can grow faster or even slower than the turning of the pages of the calendar. Okay? Some people just progress uh, quickly in the faith, and others it takes a, a, a little bit longer, and that's okay. That's, that's, it's God who gives faith. We're all believers. We're all in this trajectory. We're all in this process of sanctification. And so what Paul, when he's referring to the strong, he's just saying those that are, are farther along in their maturity in Christ, their maturity in the faith. Not that they're superhero believers or anything, and, and not that the weak are just these carnal Christians, although sometimes they are, but it's just those who have matured in the, in the faith. And so this is who Paul is addressing uh, this evening. This is who these commands are toward, is those that are mature in the faith. And so that, that we just need to get that in our mind as we, as we begin here, whether we find ourselves or think we're in that category or not. But it's not just these two polar opposites because it's all, uh, it's all on a spectrum, isn't it? As you relate to some, you may be weaker in faith than they. And if, as you relate to others, you may be stronger in faith today. And that's not a, a, a reason to judge, and that's not a reason for pride or, or depression or anything like that. That's just an understanding of where we all are and allowing for growth in Christ as we grow in our understanding of what God's Word teaches and how we are then to live. Does that make sense? Do you see what the, the difference here in, in, what, uh, uh, in, in what Paul is, is talking about here? And so to the strong now, to the strong really is who Paul gives this first repeated command to be humble. And this isn't news to us, right? If you've been walking through Romans, this has been a repeated theme of humility, uh, chapter after chapter, passage after passage, said in different ways. But he's been, he's been hammering into us this uh, necessary vital component of the faith to be humble. And so our structure here in our verses, really, there's this command of humility in these first two verses. Then in in verse 3, he's going to give us the example of Christ. Verse 4, the evidence of Scripture. And then the goal of harmony in verses 5 and 6. And so again here, humility, he said it in different ways to act act selflessly, not selfishly. He's told us to show preference to one another. And now he uses this language of bearing the weakness of those without strength. And so like I've said, this is key. This humility thing, you may think I've been harping on it. Well, in Paul, you're like, okay, I get the picture here. But this is key to the Christian life. Repetition is in, in the Bible is something that we have to take note of. Because when it's repeated, it's important, right? When your parents repeated something over and over and over, it's because it was important and they wanted you to get it, right? And, and the same goes uh, with scripture. And so it's a key. This is fundamental to faithful living. Humility is non-negotiable for all believers. But therefore, th- those who are strong, or literally those who are powerful, they have a responsibility 
to our brothers and sisters in the faith, those who are without power, literally, those who are, are weak, okay? those who are without strength. And so some believers really are able to carry more. Some believers have a higher capacity, and, and because then, of knowing that some of us have a greater capacity, we know that God gives faith and he gives a greater measure uh, uh, in, in the gifts that he gives to us, and we live and we love one another, then strong believers, we can't just charge ahead, right? Strong believers just can't charge ahead and leave the weaker behind just for our own pleasure. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, whoa, slow down. Recognize where you're at. Don't run over other believers. Recognize where they are at in their, in their walk with Christ and take consideration of them. And so doesn't this, this really goes hand in hand with, with back in, in chapter 13, right? With the command to love our neighbor as ourselves, right? And all those commands, this debt of love that we owe to one another. And so he says that we are to love our neighbor there. And he says now we are to please our neighbor there in verse 2, right? Each of us is to please our neighbor. We're not just to please ourselves, right? But now we are to please our neighbor for his good, to his edification. And so a humble believer now, we're told a humble believer thinks of another's good before his own. He's looking for no reward or payback from the other person. He's just denying the rights that he has. He's, he's denying any uh, sort of uh, recognition that he may get. And so he's denying his own rights or her own rights and, and the liberty that he has because we want what is best and what will build up. We want what is good for another person and not what is good for us to be turned into evil. But we want to build up. And so this, you, you may be hearing the echoes from chapter 14 as well. And so it really, it, it's just going hand in hand here now specifically to the strong. And so we, we, uh, we, we deny ourselves regardless of what this is going to cost to ourselves or regardless of whatever liberties or rights we may think that we have. And so we are seeking after, we're pursuing this humility and ultimately to please our neighbor. It's not just denying ourselves and sitting and pouting about it, but it's really a denial of ourselves. And then with a, a how can I do what is best and good and is going to build up this other believer, this other friend, this other person for whom Christ died? And so here's a few examples. Pleasing our neighbor is, you know, helping the widow or the shut-in with their day-to-day -day things around the house or helping them with, with end-of-life decisions and, and all the, the things that they now have to do on their own. Pleasing our neighbor is, is helping that single mom with, with kids and helping her with her child care and the repairs that come up around the house or, or, or putting things together. Pleasing our neighbor is making meals for those families with new babies. This is pleasing our neighbor for, for good and for their edification. And so these are things that we do, but pleasing our neighbor is also denying our liberty to consume alcohol when, when we know that it will cause another brother to uh, stumble or we know it's an issue for them. This is pleasing our neighbor when we, when we abstain from that. Pleasing our neighbor is also you know, turning off certain styles of music when we know that it might be offensive to somebody whether it's Christian or not, but we know that they have an issue with it. And so pleasing our neighbor is just turning that type of music off when we're with that person and not making it a big issue. And pleasing our neighbor in, in certain areas of conviction is also it's removing a piercing because a, a sister may be stumbled by associating it with something that is sinful. And so that's pleasing our neighbor. That's, that's a laying down a right or liberty that we may have uh, in, uh, for the good and the edification of, a, of another believer. And so this is what is good. This is what is commanded. This is what believers are to do 
in relation to somebody else who we may find ourselves at odds with or having a differing conviction over liberty that we may have in our conduct and our expression of our faith. And so he gives the command here. Paul gives the, lays out this command. We're told that we need to be humble, that we need to bear the weakness. We need to think about others, right? And then who does he put before us as our prime example? He leads, takes us to Christ, right? Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. Now you're like, okay, well, i got to do this. I call myself a Christ follower. And so if Christ did this, then by default, i got to do it, right? At least that should be our mindset. He takes us to Christ. You know, he pulls the trump card. He's not saying, okay, you got to, uh, you know, do this and, and uh, because it's a good idea. He's saying, well, do it. No, because Christ also did it, you know, and uh, that takes the cake. And so we, we uh, are back to who we imitate, right? We're back to, to who is our supreme example in Jesus. And, you know, we, when we think about this, Jesus didn't, he didn't leave heaven and come to earth for his own pleasure, did he? No, man. He did not leave just for his own pleasure, but he came and he endured the ridicule and he endured the reproach of mankind to redeem those very people who would ridicule and reproach him, right? He didn't come for his own comfort or for his own pleasure necessarily, but he came to, to please others, to fix the problem that we had. And that's why there's this quotation from Psalm 69.9, which may seem a little odd. It's a, it's a psalm of lament, but here it's to point out that Jesus, he went to even the point of suffering for the good of others, right? And so this is that, that supreme example again of, of humility, of Christ himself humbling himself, of taking on the reproach of men, of suffering for the good and edification of others. This is the supreme example of humility in order to accomplish the harmony between God and mankind. And what does that ring in our minds? As we hear about that, what does that automatically tell us? This is the gospel, isn't it? This is the good news of Jesus. This is what Christ did. God, who was, who, who was in heaven with his Father, and he became man. And he lived the sinless, perfect life laying aside all the rights and all the power and all the things that he could have done, all so that us rebellious men and women might be reconciled to God, that our great need, because we've found ourselves in sin, that we, that we couldn't get out of. And so he provided the solution in himself. And so he came and died and bore are the consequence that you and I deserved on the cross. And so as we think of this example of Christ, he came, he's the ultimate example, this is the gospel. And so we find ourselves, if we repent, if we believe in Jesus as our Savior, as the master of our life, we turn from our sin and we turn towards Christ. Therefore then, we, 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 we're saved. And so then after that, as we are believers and then we continue to live this humble life, as we continue to, to deny the rights that we have, even to the point where we may suffer a little bit, you know, where we can't enjoy the liberties and the freedoms that we have in regards to, uh, to, to Christian living, then ultimately we're living out the gospel. This is gospel living. This is gospel uh, demonstration to other people. And so it should be our sacrifice to, that... Please, to please our neighbor, that should be our joy. That should be what, uh, what we want to do as it demonstrates and it pictures Christ for other people. 
there's no greater no greater picture than that as we live in such a humble way even to the point where we are suffering and making these sacrifices for another believer and where they are at so that's the example of Christ where do we find Christ's example where do we read about it today in the scriptures right we read about it here in the in the scriptures. Where do we find his record of his life here? Where do we go when we find ourselves at a crossroads with a brother or sister in the faith? Where do we go when we when we uh, when we need some hope? We go to the scriptures, don't we? And this is what uh, he brings us back to here in verse four. He says, "For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction." And so what is, he, what is what was written in earlier times? Paul's writing this in the, uh, the New Testament here. And so what, was, what were his scriptures? The Old Testament, right? And so he's t- r- r- telling us about the Old Testament here. He's saying what was written in the, old, uh, in the earlier times, namely the Old Testament, was for what? What does it do? It instructs us, right? It was written for our instruction, our teaching, our, our, that we might be taught and that we might learn how to live. And so what does it teach us? It teaches us how to persevere, right? And it gives us encouragement. This, I, this word, uh, persevere, is a familiar word to us, hopomone, to bear up under a load. To, when there's a heavy burden or a heavy weight, it, it's, it's uh, to persevere and to carry on through it, even though we're carrying it, how to put one foot in front of another and bear up under this, this great load. But he also, then he says that the, the Old Testament, the scriptures here, they give us encouragement, the word here is paracaleo, which is, uh, we also have the word exhortation from it, but it's also what the Holy Spirit is known as, the one who comes alongside us, the one who encourages us in this life, the one who, who helps us shoulder the burden and helps us uh, carry on in, in, in the faith. And so what's the result then? It teaches us, it teaches us perseverance, it teaches us encouragement with what result? The result is that we might have hope. Isn't that what we all need? Don't we all need a little hope in this life? Don't we all need something to to pull us out of the pit, something to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, something to keep our eyes uh, not just uh, uh, settled in our circumstances, but but keeping our eyes fixed on what is yet ahead? Not where our head are stuck in the clouds and we just ignore what is today and not ignore all the things underneath us, but it's what gives us hope as we, as we shoulder the burden, as we persevere in the faith, we do so, we continue on with encouragement as we look ahead with hope on the horizon, with what is, what is yet to come. And so just as a side note here, uh, in this, this is why we still need the Old Testament as Christians today. You know, this, this hasn't gone away. This is, it's not like this is untrue anymore. But this is why we need the Old Testament and need it as a regular part of our soul diet. Why we need to be regularly reading the Old Testament. Because all of us need the instruction of the Pentateuch and the Proverbs, don't we? All of us need to be taught. All of us need to learn. We all need to persevere. We all need to read of the examples of the people in the Old Testament narrative books and the historical books and, and how they persevered uh, through great times of tribulation and great times of sin on a, on a national scale as people were walking away from the faith and how they persevered uh, even in the midst of captivity. We need those examples. We need to read about them and see the faithfulness of God that gives us then encouragement. All of us need the encouragement of the Psalms. All of us need the encouragement of, of reading of the stories of God's faithfulness that carried on people. 
that, that the seeing of God's goodness and his covenant uh, faithfulness to his people. And all of us need the hope of the prophets, don't we? All of us need to see that God has a plan in store, that God is at work even when it seems that he's silent, even when it seems that he's abandoned us. We all need that hope. And we find these things in the Old Testament, don't we? We find each of these things that, uh, 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 teaching us, teaching us how to persevere and encouragement and giving us hope. And so this is, this is the role of the Old Testament in the believer's life. It's really the role of all the scriptures. The New Testament uh, are, are no exception to these things. But this is why we need the Old Testament in our life. And so these, this is, uh, I'll just bring up this verse here now. This is really a theme verse for biblical counseling and, and, and why we do it. And this is, this is really what helps us uh, determine what this person needs. If the person comes to us for biblical counseling, as I, I almost always, especially in our initial uh, conversation, that I, when I'm counseling somebody, is I take them to this verse. And I'm trying to, help, I'm trying to discern uh, where is this person at? Are they just untaught and need instruction? Are they, are they undisciplined and they need some perseverance in their life? Are they, are they just are they struggling and they, they need some encouragement to carry on? Are they hopeless and they need some hope? Are they, are they, are they just so admired in whatever situation that they find themselves in, whether it's a sin that is entangling them or whether it's a, a, some discord between another believers? Are they just hopeless and don't know where to go? Well, then where do we take them? We take them to the scriptures because they'll find each of these things. They can be taught if they're just uh, unlearned in this. They can, be, they can learn perseverance if they need encouragement to can carry on. And so we, we need the scriptures, don't we? We need the scriptures. And this is where we read of Jesus. This is what helps us even as we find ourselves in these situations that Paul is referring to here. As we find ourselves at odds with another brother or sister over these matters of conviction, where do we need to go? Where do we need? We need the scriptures, right? We need the example of Jesus. We need to go and find how he interacted in these types of situations. We need to go and come to an understanding because we're united around this book and the authority that this book has in each of our lives and its sufficiency to speak to every need that we may find ourselves in. And so we can come here and we can have hope not just to cope, not just to resign ourselves. Well, this is just the way it is, and so I got to come up with some coping mechanisms or do this or that just to help me get by. Is no, we can have hope that things can be different. If God took care of our greatest need to save our souls and to redeem us and to reconcile us to the Father, surely He can take care of the matters that have uh, come between us and other believers here on this earth may be different than what we're thinking of. It, it, there may be other uh, extenuating circumstances and things, so it's not just a, a Band-Aid fix here, but know that all of us, that there is hope. That we as believers, we have hope. So Jesus here, he's our example of humility. And the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, they teach us humility too, don't they? They teach us how to be humble, how a humble person acts. They help us persevere in humility when it's really hard. They teach us, they, they encourage us in humility, and they give us the hope that we find behind our humility, why this is right, why this is important. And this, this, is, this is especially true when those that we find ourselves at odds with are, are particularly difficult, right? 
And so we come to the scriptures. We come here to the scriptures to teach us these things. And I love how this section of scripture ends. We've had this command uh, for humility. We've had the example of Jesus as evidenced in the scriptures. And now all with the goal of harmony. And this was really, this was a fascinating part for me, studying and meditating on it this week. Because where we go to find perseverance and encouragement is the scriptures. Because we know that the source of those things, right, the source of, of, of perseverance and encouragement, it's not just in the pages, right? It's, this is, that's not the source. But where, what's, where's the source of the perseverance and the encouragement that we find in the words here? It's in the power and the authority of the author, right? It's in the power and the authority of the author. It's the divine author who possesses these things to, and who grants us perseverance and encouragement. And that's why in verse 5, Paul, he, he prays this, right? This is why he requests this of God in verse 5. He says, now may God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind, okay? And so I find that so fascinating here because this is really the proof that this is the inerrant word of God. Because this is, as you may have heard often said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. And this is what Paul is drawing out here. This is uh, so fundamental to Paul's theology. He's saying, no, we come to this book is because this is where we find it. And now may God give it to us. May God give it to us believers. When we turn to the scriptures to find these things, may God in his power and ability through the Holy Spirit, may he help you and give you the power to persevere and give you the encouragement that you need in your heart to press on. Because when the Bible speaks, God speaks. This is his word. And so he gives these things. And that's, that's again, this is why Paul is requesting this. This is why he's saying, God, as they come and read it, would you give them that? Would you grant these believers as they turn to the word, as they turn to it for the authority, as they turn to it looking for help and for hope, would you give these things? And so all this humility, all the copying Christ, all, all of these things, it's all with now the goal of harmony. It's all with the goal of being of the same mind. And what's fascinating about these things is, as you think about it, okay, humility and harmony, or we might say unity, uh, to have consensus, to be like-minded here, and the example of Christ, these, this is a, uh, uh, and, and, and the encouragement of the scriptures and, and the worship of God, Really, those four things, okay, I'll say it again, harmony, humility, the example of Christ, and the worship of God, those four things, they, they go together all throughout Scripture. Paul particularly uses these things uh, together as he's making a case. The most popular example is Philippians 2, right? Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 to out to 10, you know, he's talking, he's encouraging us to be humble believers, to think less of ourselves. He gives us the example of Christ then, right, in Philippians 2. As Christ uh, came, became man, he tells us then to be of the same mind among believers. And then he says, uh, and then he closes it because one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, right? This worship of God. And so we find that here in the, these six verses as well. This call to humility, the example of Christ, now this, uh, this encouragement with this goal of harmony, and it's going to end in worship. And so God here, he gives us, as he gives us this perseverance and he gives us encouragement, turn back, look at verse 5 with me. May he grant you to be of the same mind with one another, 
according to Christ Jesus. And so we're of the, we're, he wants us to be uh, like-minded together. He wants us to be thinking similarly in Christ. Okay? And this isn't new. He said the same thing back in chapter 12, verse 16, to be of the same mind with one another, that we're in Christ. Okay? That we're, it's according to Christ, recognizing our identity, that we're united in the family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ. And we're rallied around these core doctrines. We're rallied around the truths that have been laid out in Romans 1 to 11. And so as we have the same mind, as that theology fills our mind, as we remember our identity as brothers and sisters in Christ, as slaves of the same master, then, then we have the same mind so that then with one accord, or it could equally be translated here, with one mind again, to be, this is where we get the, the word harmony or unanimous or consensus here, that we might be of one accord so that the common reaction, the, the end goal, then is that we have one voice, that we worship God. And so as we have one mind, then, uh, and we come together, we're united in this, we're harmonized in our mind, then that produces the harmony of voices as we sing out and glorify God. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that beautiful? What's, what's awesome here is, is, is uh, this idea of being of one accord. And so I was doing a word study on, on this and, and what uh, you know the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, one of the authors there, he said that this harmony is not based on similarity of inclination or disposition. Meaning it's not, this isn't a, a, a consensus or a unity that is around just a bunch of people who, who have the same personality or the same, uh, they look all the same or they're from the same place. But rather, it is upon an event from the outside, uh, literally our salvation we might say, something that happens external to us or a shared experience that brings us together that then provokes a common reaction. And so the same principle, we might say, of, of, you know, of, of soldiers. They're together. They may be from all ends of the United States, but they're together, and they have this one common cause, and they're fighting this one common enemy, and they've gone through these certain battles together. And this provokes a common reaction, this camaraderie that unites them for the rest of their lives. That, they, that they, there is a bond that is forged in, in those trenches and in those battles that, that unites them in a way that is, is, is really external to them. So this is the same that is true in believers here. As we are united around our common salvation of, of this, uh, of this in, induction into Christ's family, of this transfer out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, as we have this joint experience on this, uh, and, and this that happen, has happened in different ways at different times, all of us, but we're united onto this same team with the common mission of the Great Commission. We're united in our pursuit of Christ and living a holy life that, that these things that have happened outside of us, not of our own doing, but of the moving of the Holy Spirit, then this provokes in us this common response of worship. Of worship. And so this is what, he's, what Paul's referring to here, that we would have one voice, with one voice, that we would rise and glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in another quote, he says that the harmony... Harmony is thus a gift of God to the praise of God. 
And so this, this is, the, you know, when we talk about God being about his glory and that his chief end is to glorify himself. And so God gives this, he gives us harmony as a gift to us so that he might in turn be praised, so that he in turn might be worshipped. And so as he grants this harmony of mind, it produces a greater harmony of voices. As we are united in our minds, then our voices unite together in a powerful way. There's powerful worship when people are unified, right? There's dead worship when the people are divided, right? And so here's, here's a few examples. Last uh, spring, I was out in uh, California at the Shepherds Conference around this inerrancy summit. It was like 4,000 men, give or take some, all there united around this common uh, theme of the sovereign God and biblical inerrancy. All these men do, with differences on, on, uh, on issues of baptism, differences on issues of eschatology. I'm sure there was people in there that, that enjoy the liberties of drinking alcohol and others who abstain from it altogether. There's some who worship with their hands raised and others who worship with them in their pockets. But these differences, but all revolve, but united around this one common thing of biblical inerrancy. That this is God's word given to us to teach us and to instruct us. It's sufficient for all things in life and practice. And these 4,000 men, it was, I mean, it is indescribable worship. 4,000 men raising their voices to these songs. Uh, in, in April, we'll be going to another conference, Together for the Gospel. Even more men, 8,000 men or so in this huge basketball arena. Men who will be united around the gospel, who will be united around the, the doctrines of grace and the Great Commission, who will be united this year around the, the, the solas of the Reformation and, and the Protestant movement. Those things like in Christ alone, in through faith alone, the scriptures alone, for God's glory alone, will be united around those things. There will be, again, differences in baptism, differences in communion, difference on, on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But these 8,000 men will blow their roof off as they sing and worship together. Friday night, this, this Friday night, over in Giddings, Texas, there will be 70 women who will be singing like 700 women all united around us, the gospel and the hope that the gospel has. Sharing an experience of, of grief and child loss, infant loss. They'll come from different denominations. There'll be a smattering of different Bible translations that they'll have there, some good, some terrible. But these, these, these 70 women will be united in voice, singing at the top of their lungs, blowing the roof off of that little chapel there at Camp Tejas. This is powerful worship when people are united, right? When people are reunited, are of the same mind around these core truths, following the example of Jesus and seeking the unity of believers, of, of putting that as the highest priority. Because don't we know this is, this is the end result, this is the goal of, 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 of all these things, of our humble actions, of us denying ourselves and seeking to please others? Isn't it what the, this goal of the unity of believers this is of vital importance, guys. This is, a, this is supremely important in the church. We have to maintain unity. We can't let these, these other things divide us. You know, so the Old Testament speaks of this. Psalm 133, oh, how good it is when brothers dwell together in unity, right? Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we need to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
And so as we as we pursue this, as we as we pursue humility and not uh, just pleasing ourselves but pleasing others, it's all with this goal of harmony or unity, maintaining this amongst the body of believers. And so our challenge tonight, just as as we close here, our challenge is not to just be plain old copycats and imitating any old person, right? But let's be copy Christ. Let's imitate our Lord and Savior. Let's act humbly like he did. Let's pursue harmony like he did so that we might with one voice join together in true worship, that we might be united around these things.